Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Greg McEwen. Greg is a public speaker and leadership and business consultant. He is the founder and CEO of This Inc., a leadership and strategy design agency based in the Silicon Valley. In 2012, the World Economic Forum inducted Greg into the Forum of Young Global Leaders. He is also New York Times bestselling author of the book, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and some of the projects that you're working on? Well, I, I've spent the last uh, 20 years really uh, pursuing a question, which is, uh, why is it that otherwise successful people and companies don't continue to be successful? Uh, they Really, they ought to. Uh, if you and I were to have a race and you won like 50 yards, uh, and then we had a second race and you got to start 50 yards ahead of me, at the second race, what are the chances you'd win? And let's say you win by another 50 yards, what's the chance you win the third race with a 100-yard advantage now? I don't know what the approximate percentage chance is, but when I ask people, you know, typically they, they, they'll answer like maybe even 100%. They, they, they see it as not even high probability, but certain. Um, but when you look at the data, when you actually study this phenomenon uh, with organizations, you find that's not what happens. Uh, success doesn't just continue to breed success. And I was curious why, both on the organizational level, but also in the personal level. And so the research that I've done has been around trying to understand that human phenomenon. Why is it that, uh, you know, that, that, that we, we don't continue to, you know, towards an upward path of success? What gets in the way of it, even when we have all the momentum from previous successes? I think it's absolutely fascinating. What are some of the things that you discovered through your research? Uh, when I was working with these companies in Silicon Valley, I noticed a predictable pattern, which is that in the early days, there would be a small group focused on just the right problem at the right time. That uh, phase we could just call sort of uh, you know, clarity. They knew what they were doing, they knew who, what each other were doing, and uh, cracked the code. Clarity. Clarity led to success. It created the momentum necessary to be able to achieve, uh, you know, at least early wins. Uh, towards their ultimate goals. So clarity led to success. But success breeded new options and opportunities. Sounds like the right problem to have. But it in fact does turn out to be a problem if it leads to the fourth phase, um, which is what Jim Collins called the undisciplined pursuit of more. Uh, this, this is where things start to become quite chaotic, even greedy sometimes, but it's uh, a sort of chaos uh, that, that, that grows out of the success. And so I learned something that, uh, you know, a, a success paradox, really, because I learned that success could become a catalyst for failure, uh, that, that, that success itself had unintended consequences. And so in order to not see your success plateau or even start to fail, you have to learn a new set of skills, a new mindset and skill set so that you can become successful at success. That's true for organizations, but it's also true for you and I. It's also true at the individual level. We have to learn a new mindset and skill set in order to be able to continue to take a path to a higher and higher point of contribution. I think it's a really interesting idea that uh, success 
can be a catalyst for failure. It's sort of fascinating to think about. And I think about, I mean, there's so many different examples that we could potentially use, but uh, let's say somebody is a, a basketball player and they become a basketball star and now they have lots of media attention and that opens up new opportunities or they're an actor and, and they start to make it in acting. They start having new opportunities and it distracts them essentially from their original craft. It could be a, a company that has a lot of excess profits and people are saying you need to find new markets. And so start, they start developing new products in, in areas maybe they're not most optimized to be in. I mean, I can think of just tons and tons of potential ideas. Am I in the right world? Yes, precisely so. And so what happens is that, I mean, it's hard to imagine that in, in the corporate example you're mentioning, it's hard to imagine a corporation getting together their strategic planning group coming up with a strategic plan their intent reads we want to become irrelevant quickly uh right? no, nobody intends to do that but they end up doing that because of this phenomenon we're talking about it's not because they're stupid people it's not because they have just some crazy you know uh you know intent to fail it's that if you take the, if you become successful and then take the path of least resistance, you will end up in this unexpected place. You will pursue a strategy you don't mean to pursue. So you, you've given examples, some particular examples, which I think are totally relevant. And, you know, at, at the individual level, the basketball player gets so distracted. So in fact, I was on a plane not so long ago and, uh, I think it was uh, from the, the, the NFL uh, player there who was telling me that everybody, you know, just about, he's like everybody, that, what the word in, in the league is that you get out of here angry, broken, and broke. So this phenomenon isn't, isn't even an exception to the rule. He's sort of saying, it's the rule. This is what happens. That, that's, that's an example of this oddity. And none of them... Nobody, nobody pursues for all those years. I'm going to become a professional football player so that I can end up broke, broken and angry. Uh, that, that, but still somehow they pursue that strategy. What's going on? And it's this other factor. And so, so we, you've covered it. We mentioned it basketball. We talked about it with professional football. We talked about corporations, but there's another way we ought to talk about it too, because it's not just anymore that someone individually must experience massive success and then follow an undisciplined path that is still true but people can experience the at the individual level the same experience not based upon their own massive success but because of the massive success that has taken place over the last whatever years we want to call it 50 60 years in in the United States, in, in other industrialized countries around the world. So everybody listening to this can test it this way. They can say this. Have they ever felt, have you ever felt, same for you too, busy but not productive? <laughs> have, you, have you ever felt stretched too thin at work or at home? Uh, have you ever felt the pressure just to say yes to avoid you know, causing trouble? Have you ever felt other people and things hijacking your agenda for the day? If, if people are saying yes to that, the, the key, and if they all could do it audibly, you would see that, that 
literally almost everybody is experiencing that today. I ask groups all over all over the world now that question. Groups of, of different different industries, different levels. It is literally a hundred percent of people everywhere are saying yes to that. That means that we're experiencing a cultural phenomenon, and that that's really important point to get. I know it's a conceptual point. Everything's been pretty conceptual in our conversation so far, but it's still a really important concept because what it's saying is that we are collectively in the, the paradox of success. We are collectively in a culture of the undisciplined pursuit of more. So that means that even if a person listening to this hasn't had some groundbreaking, tremendous success moment in their life and now they're being overwhelmed by the options, because around them, because in our country, because in the culture, there is so much success. Now, it might not always feel like that, right? If somebody's, somebody's struggling to pay some bill or something, it might not feel like they're in tremendous success. But in the great scheme of things, their le- the level of success measured by the number of options available to them is so much greater than any previous generation that, that you can learn anything. And basically learn anything for free now that is unheard of 100 years ago 200 years ago anything for free anything you can you can go almost anywhere for far cheaper than you could before travel is so so inexpensive compared to maybe reading about the founding fathers john John adams recently i mean these people that the effort to travel expense to travel is so immense compared to now so Everybody is dealing with this, what sounds like, again, a nice problem to have, but still is a problem, which is that there is so many more opportunities and options than they can possibly pursue. And so an undisciplined pursuit of more is the default setting of our lives in such a culture. And that's fine if it's all working great for you, but there's a risk involved, which is that you could end up, like the companies I was studying in Silicon Valley, and working with, you could end up starting to plateau in your progress or fail altogether. Not because you intend to, but because you're just doing what everyone else is doing these days, which is a ton of stuff in a ton of different directions. And and, and so maybe we ought to recognize that so that we can choose a different, more deliberate strategy. I definitely can resonate with some of the things that you're talking about. I see in myself, I see in the people around me. You talked earlier about essential tool sets, right? There's this new set of tool sets or mindset skill sets that you have to acquire in order to sort of deal with these challenges once you've been made aware of them. Can you talk a little bit about what some of these tool sets are? Yeah. Let's let's just start for a second with 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 mindsets. Then let's give some language actually. The the default setting we're talking about is to be a non-essentialist. Uh, a non-essentialist believes certain things. They believe, they, not because they chose this belief, but because it's in the environment, they believe almost everything is equally important. Everything's, everything's equally important. You should, everything you, everything you read online is equally important. Everything you, every opportunity that's coming, every email that's coming at you, it's all built this way. You know, you don't have a really clear sense all the time that, uh, that the new five emails that have come in, that really none of that is important. It doesn't feel like that. It, it, it feels pressured, so it feels important. So this is something that a non-essentialist believes. It's all about equally important. So my job, therefore, if I want to do well, is to do as much of this as possible. Just get through this. Like 
the, the mindset might be that we're, it's as if we're in a coal mine and our job is to get out as much coal as possible. The, the, the essentialist mindset is really different. The essentialist, which is the language for the, the alternative here, the essentialist sees that almost everything is noise and of low value. Almost everything is non-essential. A few things are really, really important, really essential. For example, back to the metaphor, the, mine, the mining metaphor, it's like they discover that, oh, I'm, I'm not in a coal mine. I'm in, I'm in a diamond mine. What a difference that suddenly makes. So the whole way you approach mining would be different. You, you're not trying to shovel as much stuff out as possible. You're trying to find the diamonds. You're very carefully looking for a very particular thing now. And most of it you can see is not what you're looking for. So you can ignore that and keep searching for the particularly high value, essential, in this case, uh, you know, uh, jewels. But in our lives, it's the essential activities, the few things that are really valuable, that are key to taking breaking through to the next level. So that's the mindset difference. And, and I emphasize that because if you just learn a bunch of new skills, if, for example, somebody says, okay, I've got this problem, I'm going to start reading productivity books, I'm going to start trying to be more efficient, you actually, you still, you might even exacerbate the problem we're talking about. You might do more of the wrong stuff. So essentialism, which is the, the, the antidote to non-essentialism, it's the antidote to this problem we've been talking about so far, is the, the, the disciplined pursuit of less but better it is the it's the constant perpetual purposeful pursuit of the things that are vitally important and and to do it there's really three key skills that are that are required the first is that you have to create a lot of space relative to to, to what we normally do a lot of space to really think, to ponder, to question, to explore what is essential. You have to, a little ironically, you have to go broader than, than a non-essentialist will go. Non-essentialist too busy doing everything. Oh, there's an idea. I'm doing it. There's an idea. I'm going to do it. The, the, the essentialist says, okay, hold on. I'm going to go broader. I'm going to consider. In fact, I was just at a camp Steve Harvey put to, put together for single moms and, uh, basically, Boys without, you know, without fathers, several hundred people, really inspiring and interesting camp. And as he said to the, to the mothers, he said, he said, what you have to do, you have to come up with a list of 400 things that you, it wasn't saying you have to do them all, but he's like, you have to think really big and bold and broad way beyond, oh, I got to make my rent check. He's like, you got, the way he said it, he said, you've got to do every item on this list should be something that you believe you couldn't do without God helping you. It, that, that's how he framed it. And that was a good example to me of this principle of exploring. You've got to create space to think like that, not just react to the latest email, the latest pressure, the latest drop somebody off at school. And, and you, you're never thinking about what could I be doing? Essentialism isn't about doing more stuff. It's about doing more of the right stuff. And the problem is that most of us plateau where we are because we're just trying to do more stuff. So this 400 list idea that, that, that Steve Harvey is suggesting 
is like push yourself way beyond your current activity. As I, I as an essentialist myself, or aspiring essentialist, you've got to be careful not to then go, okay, now I'm going to try and do 400 things. No, that is not the idea. But you suddenly have so many different options you had before of higher quality, big and different. And then from that, you select, you carefully select and eliminate most of that. But you come out with a few things, maybe even down to back down to one thing. But it's a total game changer. You don't know how to do it. But you know if you did it, it would change everything else. A goal that is 10 times greater contribution than anything you're doing now. And, and, and the key with that, the key with doing that is that suddenly you have just what you need to be able to evaluate everything that you would otherwise try to be efficiently doing. You get to look at, you get to say, Everything on my list, will any of these items help me achieve the goal I'm really trying to achieve? And you will find that if you've done it right, by definition, 90% of the stuff on your to-do list has nothing whatsoever to do with achieving that goal. Otherwise, it's not a stretch goal. Otherwise, it's not 10 times bigger, more higher contribution. It's just the same as what you've been doing. So once you have that, with you, you suddenly have the next level clarity. You have something that is so significant, so important, so out of your comfort zone. What? But you now have something that's truly essential. You have clarity. You have what those companies had in Silicon Valley. You have clarity. And that can help propel you to the next level of success instead of getting caught up in all this, all this noise. So again, now just to be clear, there's a mindset. But then the skill set is to explore what's essential, eliminate what's not, so that you can build a new system that will help you to almost effortlessly achieve this new 10 times higher contribution, this great essential intent that you want to go after. And that is the pattern, the perpetual pattern, the disciplined pursuit that makes somebody an essentialist and is at the core of what it means to live essentialism. That's awesome. the, The first example I think of of something like this when I read about Steve Jobs coming back to Apple and he got everybody into a room, or he had a conference, got everybody into a room and they came up with all these different ideas and they narrowed them down to four. Was, I think it was like a pro desktop, a desktop, a laptop and a mobile device. And that mobile, mobile device became the iPod. And what they were trying to do is they said that he, he thought the company was spread way too thin. So what he wanted to do was I mean, he did this with products, but he also did this with people. He went into the organization and kind of went through and talked to everybody and asked them what they did and started cutting people. And he was trying to sort of lean the machine down and and cut the non-essentials in an attempt to get clarity. Yes, the the I mean, there's there's a, a lot to mine out of the, uh, the Steve Jobs story. The you know one is how many products there were when he came back. The answer is three hundred and thirty. That's a lot of products. You, you rightly say there were four categories that they then simplified everything down to 10 products. There's 10 products, but under four categories. And, but I mean, even if we went no further with the story, that's significant. That alone is really something from 330 to 10 in a clear, simple, this is what we're doing. I mean, what that meant, which is critical is it didn't, it wasn't just like, this is what we're going to do itself of course is really important it was also clear what we're not going to do 
if you just get clear about what you're going to do and then you don't get rid of anything, if you don't eliminate anything, if you don't actually get anything off your to-do list by virtue of elimination or delegation, then you haven't really done anything. You know, strategy in one sense is what you say no to. A, a, a slightly more subtle point that we can make about Steve, which I, I always want to make, is that, well, sometimes when people think about Steve, they go, well, it's okay for him, right? He's the founder. Yes, he came back and successfully rescued it. Yes, it was great, great business renaissance of the decade. I mean, and all that stuff is really important. But still, people can sometimes go, ah, this, is this just an elite message? Is this just, is it just okay for the CEO, for the founder? Fine for him, but what about the rest of us? And I like uh, a story, a corroborated story, of, uh, of someone who said no to Steve Jobs and lived to tell the tale. And this is when Steve had left Apple. He starts the company next. He wants a great logo. He's already had one at Apple, right? One of the really most iconic logos anywhere. And he wants a great logo for his new company. And he gets one of the top logoists in the world, Paul Rand. Rand comes, meets with him. Paul, uh, Steve says, let me tell you how this is all going to go. I mean, you can imagine, right? This is a new client. Uh, he's going to pay $100,000 for the logo. It's not cheap, especially at the time. Uh, he says, he says I, I want a great logo. He starts explaining how the process will work. Get me a bunch of options. I'm going to tell you what I like. Go back. You're going to do this, that, the other. He tries to explain how it all is going to, going to work. Uh, Paul Rand listens to what finally responds. Um, uh, no. I am going to solve your problem for you. And I will bring you the solution. I will bring you the logo. And you will pay me. And that's how it works. That's how, I, that's how I'm going to do this. Steve's a little taken aback. He says, okay, we'll try that. Uh, he says later of the experience, he says, Paul Rand brought me a jewel of a logo. Jewel. And then he added this. He says, he says, Paul Rand was the ultimate professional. Because he had thought through how to create value for me more deeply than I had. And, and that's, that's clear example of essentialism in practice. That is somebody saying, instead of trying to shovel coal for you, I'm going to try and get a diamond for you. I mean, that's, a, that's the same language we were just using a second ago. It's a jewel of a logo. He found the diamond for him. How did he do it? He did it by doing three things. Explored what was essential. How did he do that? He asked more questions. He thought more deeply. What are they, what's their intent? What are they trying to do? Let's look at all the options of what they would want to be doing. And he's thinking through this deeply, more deeply even than the client was. What did he do then? He then he eliminated himself. He said, well, then that stuff's all junk, but I can't do that and I can't do that. I'm going to deliver the thing itself. And he has a whole system he'd prepared for years and years for how to do this and to do it in a sense effortlessly. So developed, in fact, that even when faced with some of this charismatic, powerful, and uh, was, was, what word could we use for Steve? Uh, you know, uh, edgy. That, that, might, that might intimidate somebody. He's still, it's built in. He's not going, well, for you, I'll make an exception and change my whole system that I've been doing to build such iconic brand uh, logos as ABC and Bloomingdale's and a bunch of others. Oh, now I'm going to, I'm going to throw the whole thing up. No, he built a system 
to make it as effortless as possible to execute this high level of value. And he went on to, 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 to solve the problem, get paid. Here's the story. So this is essentialism in practice, even when dealing with somebody that is clearly your superior because it's the person who is paying you. But how easy it would be to just go, okay, fine, Steve, you want that? I'll just do it your way. That's what the client wants. We're not supposed to just reactively, in an undisciplined way, do what clients want us to do. You even would push back on a customer. Of course. Non-essentialists won't see that, doesn't believe that, doesn't see that. Now, you don't just push back to be unhelpful, as like many airline experiences with airlines that are just just bad customer service. It's not. No, that's not what we're talking about. But the trusted advisors, I mean, the people in my life, for example, who I really trust, trusted advisors to me, of course they say no. They don't say no for the sake of it. They say no. Well, we could do that, Greg, but I really think this is the much better way to do it, to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Of course I listen to those people. I want them to be thinking deeply. So that's one illustration of how essentialism it can work even in a corporate environment, even where you don't have, uh, you know, all, all the power, even the final saying power. And this is this is key to be able to increase your influence, increase your uh, credibility uh, and, and, and overall contribution. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, Listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. As you're saying that, I thought about restaurants, how some sort of fast food restaurants have added more and more and more items to their menus and sort of in the process trying to serve everybody. They've they sort of diluted their brand and, and you've had other companies come along that fo- focus specifically on making like salads or tacos or they kind of focus on one thing and have allowed them to sort of specialize and build really extraordinary businesses and yeah like what like like what like who are you thinking of in new york city it could be sweet green which is a salad shop or they're having a little bit of trouble but chipotle focusing on sort of uh, four or five mexican food items uh it could be uh, in new york city there's a company called juice press that's only doing sort of juices and they're, they're sort of expanding but i mean those are some of the few that come to my mind what, what are some that come to your mind Oh, there's, there's there's all sorts, to, uh, and 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 of course, any subject on this, any model, you have to you have to get into the nuance of things at some point, so you don't oversimplify a subject, but you 
You look at Chick-fil-A, for example, uh, you, you know, this, this is a company. No, we don't do everything. In fact, you know, look at the banners. This is the cows up there, you know, eat, eat more chicken. This is, they're saying we are not that. Could they be that? Yes. Would they get some extra business for some period of time for doing? Yes. Then everything would change. It would become a straddled strategy. And, and this is a really key idea in understanding the difference between, this is a key tool for going from living as a non-essentialist to living as an essentialist is the difference between a straddled strategy and a trade-off strategy. A straddled strategy, uh, you know, we just mentioned, uh, I just mentioned the airline industry, just riffing on that for a second. When Southwest comes onto the scene, they are pursuing a strategy that is completely different than the, than the major carriers in the United States. This is hub-to-hub uh, service. This is far simpler. Of course, there's no, there's no food being offered. Uh, there's no seat assignments. I mean, this is a very different low-cost carrier thing. And at first, people are laughing at them. I mean, Continental does not take them seriously. Uh, but 10 years later, Southwest making a lot of money now by, by, by extraordinary consistency. This is what we do. This is what we do not do. Now, I don't mean by the way that they weren't innovating. They were constantly innovating. They're constantly exploring and eliminating. This is how they got to the 15-minute turnaround, unheard of, unthought of. It took constant innovation, but just still consistency to a long-term, clear, essential intent. The, the low-cost carrier uh, service, hub-to-hub carrier in, in, in the United States. They knew who they were and who they weren't. So finally, they're making a lot of money, and Continental sees this, and they, they follow a complete non-essentialist straddled strategy by which they they started a service called Continental Light. They didn't start it as a separate company that might have actually worked. They had it within their same system. So that's like Chick-fil-A saying, okay, well, now we are going to do burgers after all. You introduce, actually, even worse than that, right? It's really like Chick-fil-A suddenly saying, we're going to offer high-quality, uh, you know, expensive steaks into the system. It's just like completely contrary to the whole uh, system. And, and for Continental to suddenly have lower cost fares for a lower cost airline within their existing airline, well, well, nobody could understand what was going on. Customers would call the same lines, get different information. I mean, they broke records. If you can imagine for numbers of complaints per day in the airline industry. <laughs> and uh, they, they lost $150 million and the CEO was fired. This is what straddled strategy produces. And, and sometimes in our own lives, we produce straddle strategies that aren't just two things like continental and continental light. We might end up pursuing 10, 20, 50 different, th- different strategies. They're not just different activities. They're just actually not supporting one another. They're not uh, coherent, working together activities. So they're actually at odds with each other. And and this means that we are not going to end where we want to end up, or we're not going to have a clear breakthrough as a result. I mean, strategy done right is about making trade-offs that support the overall strategy, that actually help you get somewhere. It's saying, this is the thing I'm trying to do, the significant essential intent that's beyond and over and above anything that I'm currently doing or able to achieve. And then you start to align your activities in different ways than you did before. 
that are consistent with that strategy. And so you start to create a life that other people are not creating. And, and, and at first that can feel a little weird, you know, there's, there's going to be some fear of missing out or FOMO. <laughs> Because other people are still trying to do everything and they're pursuing a straddle strategy. And at first, uh, you know, over at Southwest, they might have felt a little weird that Continental Light's coming up. And well, maybe we should do a, if they're doing a low cost carry, maybe we should do a high cost carry to try and compete with these guys. But they seem to have this other thing, which is they seem to understand who they were and who they were not to such an extent that they experienced the joy of missing out or uh, or jomo <laughs> which i really actually believe is true i believe that herb kelleher so clearly understood what the company was and what it wasn't that he was happy to not be pursuing the strategies that the other companies were there's a story that, that i cannot substantiate but it almost doesn't matter whether the story is true or not because at southwest it's shared and talked about as law so it still made the impact into the culture at the company. And here's how the story went. That there was a customer complaining at the time. It wasn't emails, it was letters. They're sending letters. They think the story goes seven letters complaining about the experience at Southwest. I feel like we've heard cattle. I want seats. I want food. This is, I don't like this. Finally, Herb Keller responded, sent a letter. I've received your letters. Uh, I, I appreciate you sending them. I recommend. Uh, yeah, a solution, which is that I think you ought to fly continental. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to be what you want us to be. Now, that isn't the same as bad customer service. That's not the same. That's saying this is this is not who we are. This is not what we do. So we can't accommodate this, not because we're trying to be unhelpful to you, but because we're trying to actually produce great service for the people that want this service and 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 so you know just sort of tying up this uh, you know we've looked at what happened to continental but what has happened to southwest over this period if you put one dollar into every company in the s p 500 in 1972 and kept that dollar constant in all 500 companies for the next 30 years which companies would produce the big, biggest return on your investment? Would it be, would it, would it be Microsoft, or Coca-Cola? I mean, you know, it's predictable at this point what the answer is, but the answer is Southwest. Of all 500, S&P 500 is a company in the airline industry. A, 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 an industry fraught with difficulties, fraught with low profits, fraught with businesses that come and fail. That's the most biggest return on investment what how did they do it was it straddled strategy no it was it's the it's the opposite it was trade-off strategy it was where you make these trade-offs and you get the little pieces to work together the idea is to do that in our own lives here's a specific sort of formula for doing this schedule every 90 days a personal quarterly offsite in which you take a day away from your away from everything to really get in design mode. What is it I'm trying to achieve? What's the big breakthrough? It might be the same as you've identified 90 days before at your last personal quarterly offsite. That's fine, but you're definitely re-engaging to it. And you're starting to reflect on what, what's gone right over this 90 days, 
what has not gone right, what new opportunities have come, which things do I need to eliminate, how do I go, how do I go big on the thing that I have identified that is is this breakthrough essential intent that we've been talking about? Uh, what would take me to a completely next level? You take the time to get clear on that so that you're not just managing your life email to email, text to text, tweet to tweet. I mean, this is, uh, this might be a good servant, these tools, but they're, no, they're nothing of a good master, a very poor master. And, and so you get away from this. That's where you do some of this thinking. Uh, you know, several years ago, I started doing this and I can point to moments of deep reflection, formally on personal offsites and sometimes informally, just when, you know, sort of on a vacation, I took a vacation at one point with my children, my family, with my wife, two and a half weeks, zero email. A clear idea came to me there about what the next level was, massively big, massively different than anything I'd done previously materially changed the the direction of our lives since then enormous set of smaller decisions have followed that strategic decision that wouldn't possibly made i mean including that the the area i live in that we live in the city we live in the house we live in the, the everything we're doing has been shifted because of that essential intent that's the power of it is that you can start pursuing, you've got to start getting rid of all sorts of things. I, I am pursuing, and not that anybody needs to care about what I'm having to be doing, but I'm pursuing a strategy so different than what typically you would do as an author. Authors is this very consistent thing you do as authors. You write a book and you write another one and another one, another one. That's what you do. And you might also build coaching and workshop programs around what you're doing. And, and you can build a whole business around that. That is a very established thing to do. And really, that's what I, quote unquote, should do. But I, I'm, I'm not doing that. There's a whole different path. And, and if it works, I'm not even necessarily going to get into it, but if it works, it, the contribution, the, I, I would re, be able to reach more people in a week than I could in my whole life from the existing, from the, from the typical strategy. I think this is helpful. So if somebody is listening to this and I mean, there's really great ideas. I mean, as you were talking, I thought about the book, The Innovator's Dilemma. I thought about Blue Ocean Strategies and some of the problems that come in both those books. I thought about some other examples, but you have this sort of like very practical set of steps that people can utilize in order to sort of get clarity. And I really love that. You start talking a little bit about the direction that you're trying to take your life from your own experience of stepping away and going through that process. And I'm wondering if you could just share that and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. So much of life is testing and exploring, but I think it would be helpful if somebody's listening to this to understand what is this process like for you on a personal level as somebody who sort of developed this model or framework? Yeah, let me just say it this way. I, um, I think essentialism for me in a way has got harder over time. Not because my skill level is weaker or my muscles, uh, essentialist muscles are weaker, but because if you keep doing it right, if you keep setting the new clarity goal, the new essential intent high enough, significant enough, you will be saying as a result, no, to many things you would previously have been definitely saying yes to and maybe even enthusiastically saying yes to these are in fact the very goals you wanted 
But if the intent has changed to a whole nother level, then you will have to be looking around going, yeah, that amazing thing that a few years ago, I would have absolutely just loved the opportunity to pursue. I'm no longer going to pursue. It will no longer serve the higher purpose. So, you know, examples for this include, um, I, I, I uh, went to business school at Stanford. I love to teach. I love to write. So the idea while I was living there of becoming a faculty member, you know, for Stanford was amazingly, uh, you know, that's just dream stuff for me. And uh, I mean, even going to Stanford was dream stuff for me. That was as far as that was my essential intent for three years. That's what led me there. And it took all the faith I had and then some. And a few miracles for that to happen. It was a huge breakthrough. I could not even imagine it fully. That happened. Then, oh, I'd love to be a faculty member. Then eventually the opportunity came and said, look, you know, co-created a class at Stanford. And, and he said, look, if you'd like to be a faculty member, this is how this is how to make that happen. I can make that happen. And I'm suddenly at the place. I'm like, oh, this is this is this is what I want. But by that point, there was a higher intent already. And what it was is to do television, is to do a, a breakthrough show in television, and and uh, and and that was it's such a big and such a new thought, and it takes it's you know, I always understood and still understand this is a multi-year journey to figure it out, to to understand it, to translate it correctly, to to build it. I mean, you know, this is this is challenge, um, but it feels so right that you pursue it, and and so no. It didn't go through what would have been a very simple process to to be the faculty member at Stanford. That's an example. I didn't write the next book when the publisher was ready for it and the agent is ready for it. Uh, I started down the journey and I felt, no, it's not the thing. And so I let everybody know, no, it's on pause until we crack the code on television or until we get to a point where that journey is that journey is, is really begun and you know there's a system in place for that to take place and it was interesting because when i i, I let i let everybody know I, okay this thing's on pause within a couple of weeks as i recall after that that's when steve harvey read essentialism and blogged about it this book has changed my life if that had happened previously i think i would have just gone oh that's kind of fun that's cool back to writing the next book but because the intent was there and because i'd eliminated what was a really good but still non-essential thing striking that next book i I had the space to see the opportunity and did pursue it and so then uh, as a result of that ended up getting to know steve and and we did uh you know four episodes uh based on essentialism working with people from his audience you know know, I, i fly to their to their house work with them uh, see how we could interrupt the non-essentialist habits and bring in essentialist, new essentialist habits to, to help them uh, figure out uh, this higher, higher contribution life. And uh, it was just fabulous. This, this all took place within about you know, six or nine months of having uh, decided not to do the next book. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's significant. Uh, within within a year of deciding not to do the next book, we had moved, not to LA, but to the LA area with San Fernando Valley. And, and I can't even describe that journey to you. We, we looked at hardly any houses. We knew almost nothing about the area. We ended up being in a little area so perfect and aligned with with, with the goals that we really have for our family. It, 
none of that would have happened if we hadn't taken this higher higher intent pursuit where the whole thing would have been different really materially different that 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 strategy that's how it starts to align and, and, and piece together and I, I i don't know what the future will be if it, the whole thing fails i would already feel like i'd already been paid for for the trade-offs i already feel like it has been well well worth it but i i believe that the next you know i don't want to put a, a, a you just never know but let's say it's 10 years the next 10 15 years are going to really be extraordinary because of this difference uh workshop business oh man that's i've tortured about that for years essentialism there's a demand for it. emails all the time still hey could we run a workshop could i run workshops for you could we do it in your businesses and there is a demand there is a there's a need for it there's a want for it there's a business for it it's profitable never get right about it i keep pursuing it for a little while tempted into it try it out test it out that's okay then i finally go no it's not the path as you just remove it don't do it to do television instead think of the difference in strategy now i'm not saying anyone else shouldn't do it but there's loads of other great strategies and they should pursue other strategies and if you want to build great workshop businesses they should do it it's a great business to be in it's just not the business i want to be in the one i feel right about think of the difference in impact you, you, you build the most successful workshop business in the world you can reach hundreds of thousands of people and i there's nothing wrong about that that's significant and fabulous you 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 take the full if, if you have the breakthrough you now comparing likes for likes the most successful you take the most successful tv shows in history you might reach 100 million people a week you know in oprah's example take one of the most successful shows in history you know all over the world i mean that's the difference and I, i'm not saying I will, I will ever achieve anything like that i i don't even know we'll see what will happen we'll see if there's even a show but we'll fail trying because it's the right pursuit Hopefully somebody who's listening to this might work in television and they'll reach out to you after knowing that this is your goal. I think it's it's hard sometimes when we feel when we have a, a dream or some, something new that we're trying to sort of get into or explore to put it out there and let people know because a lot of people oftentimes are worried about failure. I know I've, I've been in that situation, but um, getting out into the world is really important. So hopefully somebody's listening to this and they, they feel like they can help you, they can reach out to you and... Uh, and help you along your journey. I think it's really cool. It sounds like you have a lot of clarity or you've gained a lot of clarity a around your next step and you're trying something a little bit different. It also sounds like you have a very clear idea of what it is you value at this point of your life. I keep hearing the word influence and so it sounds like you want to spread your ideas to more people if that's possible and you're looking for ways to do that. If, so if somebody is listening to this and they don't quite know themselves as well, how do they go through that process to figure out what it is the things that what are the things that they really value so they can begin to cut away at the things that shouldn't be as important because they're sucking up a lot of time and energy and resources? Well, I think something that they could do is take everything from their mind, write it down in a piece of paper, everything. If they can't do it even in a single sitting, you just can't. But you just make a list, Excel spreadsheet, on a piece of paper, whatever, and just start writing it all down. Everything, 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 until it's all out. Uh, first time I did this, I think there were 350 items. You know, like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff wrapping up around up there for me. It feels good, by the way, just to do that, just on its own merits. You just get all that junk out of your head. You can't process 350 things. That's just draining up the RAM of your life, uh, of your brain. 
Then, look at it all. This is like taking everything out of your closet as if to go through it. The question is not, is this good stuff? It's just what are the nines or tens on this list out of ten in terms of importance to me and also connection. Like my, my like feeling of rightness. Like this thing is right for me to do. I should do this. Not other people think I should do it. I feel it inside of me that deep down, the voice of conscience, my own spirit is saying, this is the right path. Walk after that. Look for the extremes. You're looking for the nines or tens. You're not looking for the six, sevens, or eights. So don't con yourself. Don't go, well, that's okay. I guess I'll put a nine next to it. Nine or ten, this is like a really pretty definitive yes. Like really, that's, I, I feel it. And maybe, maybe if, if people really look at this and they just can't find anything that's nine or ten for them, which I think most people can, but if they can't, go the other extreme. Look at the ones. Look at the stuff on there that you just go, if I could, I would give that to somebody else in a heartbeat. I have no interest in that. I have no feeling towards it. It could be a perfectly good thing for someone to do, but just not for me. It does not speak to me. It does not connect for me at all, right? You're looking for the extremes. If you can't figure out your clear yeses, at least figure out your clear noes. It's the next best thing. Start getting rid of the clear noes. Start saying, what, what can I do? How can I uncommit from this? This whole chapter in essentialism on uncommitting. How can I get rid of this thing? How can I delegate it? Is there somebody else who wants to do it? Would it be a good opportunity for somebody else? So the idea is to try and divide this list of everything that's in your mind into two buckets, your definite yeses and everything else. Because even though you start maybe with the ones if you can't figure out your tens, in the end, everything but your tens deserves to be over in the non-essential category. Now, I'm not saying you have to say no to everything but your nines and tens, but they all should be questioned. Everything that's not a nine or a ten should be questioned for a simple reason. This is, this is I mean, it sounds madness to people to question everything but nine to ten out of ten yeses for me. Yeah. Why? Because you have, if you pursue this approach that we've been talking about today, especially if you can keep developing over time, go through the process every quarter, do what I'm describing. Over time, you will find more and more nines and tens. Enough that it will fill completely the rest of your life. So that means that if there is enough nines and tens to consume the rest of your life, then any time you spend on the six, sevens, and eights, of course, any of the ones, twos, and threes, you're taking away from the highest contribution, the highest meaning of life that you could have, that you'd be living. And so that's why this is like, this is, this is everything we've been talking about, straddled strategy versus trade-off strategy comes clear here. Because it's not just about level of success versus average success versus failure. It's there's so little time left for all of us. It's we're already we're already in the tail end. That's a great article. Everybody should go and read it. It's a great article. Uh, it's a graphical article online. The the tail end, and see how if it can't shift your own thinking to how little time remains. There's so little time remaining 
far less than we think. Far, far, far less. Even if you live optimistically to, to a certain age, it's just we, we suffer from something called the planning fallacy. It's a brain heuristic that, that predisposes us to believe that things will take less time than they take. And that's just true for the rest of our lives. And so, so that's the, tr- the, the that's the risk. I was reading, uh, I was reading scripture this morning, a verse that said, "Don't sell your money for things that are of no worth and don't satisfy." And I thought, yeah, that's it right there. That's what we mean by that's what we mean. Don't spend your time, resources, money, creativity, initiative, energy on the stuff that's and the trivial stuff, it just doesn't matter. When you could live some a life that really matters. You could do something that matters for a long, long time. That matters even after you're forgotten. I mean, that's what's possible. You could do something that really is deeply meaningful, satisfying, and, and, and achieve something that, that blesses a lot of lives. That's what it really is at stake with, with becoming an essentialist. It's not about efficiency. It's not about doing more things. It's more of the right things. It's living a life of highest contribution. Yeah, I think I love what you're saying. I mean, there's so many different things that sort of have popped into my mind as we're talking, and I want to highlight a few of them. Um, one, you, early in the podcast, you mentioned something Steve Harvey said, and he, he said while listing out these goals, and used the example of listing them out yourself, he uh, Steve Harvey had these women list out 400 goals, and then he mentioned these should be things that you could only do with God's help. And, and whether someone's religious or not, if they're listening to this, so this idea that what he's doing is he's creating a framework for the people who are listening to him talk about this idea, go mo- move beyond their fear, right? And and to really sort of go big and expand. I know uh, I remember years ago listening to Anthony Robbins try to do this in a very different way. I think it was personal power too. And I listened to it as like, I don't know, at 20 or something, 19 or something. And it was profound. Yeah, you got you got infected with an idea. Yeah, and uh, that well, why not think really big if you're going to think? <laughs> well, it's not only thinking really big, but the idea of what it means to think big at different stages of one's life. I mean, we do a lot of social coaching, a lot of dating coaching, and it's funny because there are people we've had come into our classes and. They say like, before I went to your classes, there was a type of person where maybe there's a girl and I, I would think, God, if I could marry a girl like that, I would be the happiest guy on the planet. <laughs> and then a year or two later, they come back and they're like, you know, I've outgrown that human being. I've grown and I've outgrown them. Like if I married that person today, I'd be completely unhappy. And now I'm dating four or five people or three or four people or two people. And the truth is I'm trying to figure out which direction I should go because there's some sadness in Bill Clinton's biography. He mentions one of his teachers said that you could pick the most beautiful, the smartest, the most caring, the greatest human being like as your partner. And there's some sadness and and say no to the other ones. And, but there's people, there's clients who come through and they're saying like, now I'm trying to figure out, I would have married any of these people uh, two years ago or three years ago. Now I'm trying to figure out, who's the right person for me, which connects to sort of a larger problem that you talked about it. Let's say that you're, you're a person who is trying to meet somebody or they want to become successful meeting somebody. And then eventually you do and you settle down, you decide you're what you want to settle down. That creates a new 
challenge in your life. If you have kids, that's an awesome thing growing a family, but it creates a new set of challenges. If if you write a book and your book does well, or you start a business and your business does well, and you create financial stability for yourself and your partner and your family, um, or even extreme amounts of financial success, it creates new sets of problems. And so what I'm getting at is through the course of life, as we focus in on solved problems, new problems are created. And I can see how using the model that you have described will give somebody a ton of clarity as they're identifying sort of the next set of things that they should be working on. Because although all these, a lot of these things that come into our life as we age and hopefully uh, garner different forms of success are wonderful. The journey is wonderful. The culmination of some of these events is wonderful. Like, but they also create new sets of problems. And it, there's this sort of constant process, whether it's someone reorganizing somebody's apartment or reorganizing somebody's life or their email inbox. Sort of like in really practical ways, we deal with this every single day. And in, in, in just about every facet of our life. Yeah, and I, and I want to connect the dots here. When, when I think about the journey I went on, the, the dating journey I went on to, to meet my wife, it was so deeply connected to each of us pursuing our essential intent, to pursuing what really we felt guided to, not just what everyone else was doing. And, and in fact, if we had not done the impossible that we would have met, literally, like, there's not many things impossible, this would have been impossible, because we lived on different continents. We're in completely different fields, completely everything. Um, but because we pursued our mission in life, because we were so focused on that each individually, and not just not just an external goal that somebody has set for us or even that we've ra- quickly got to, but because we were doing the deep inner work, the spiritual work really, to get to deep clarity where you can hear your voice of conscience, it led my wife to do music dance theater uh she's at byu i'm at leeds in england doing law school but i suddenly kept feeling this is not my mission i've got to do something different i came to the united states and a whole series of things ended up quitting law school to teach and write that was the mission because of that i ended up the the, the same university and an article was written about what i was doing and trying to teach write and do all this introducing a column i was going to write for the paper this is all pursuing my intent she's pursuing her intent Still lives are totally separate. Um, she read the article in the paper. Meanwhile, they chose not to publish the whole series. There was going to be a 200 columns published. And then some other administrative decision was made above the head of the person I'd been working with. And they just, just canned the whole thing. And I felt at first like discouraged. Like I want to teach. I want to write. I've done all this work. This is good. The papers. I think this was going to be a breakthrough. One thing has been published. I remember feeling this sense, this, this prompting of, just, you just don't worry about this. Just, this is all going to work out well for you. But unbeknownst to me, Anna is reading this article. And not just reading it, she's going, that's how I feel. Here I am doing music, dance, theater, everybody. Well, what are you going to do with that? I'm just following my, my voice of conscience. I'm just doing what feels clear and right. Not, I'm not doing what everyone else is doing. I'm doing right thing in the right time at the right way so we, we actually met connected through coincidences but not much happened at first i was too i suppose it to be honest too busy uh you know a bit, a bit distracted a little ironically with some of the goals that i had and that's why i'm saying you've got to get the voice of conscience not just the goals right 
But then I was reading in the newspaper an article about her because she kind of out of the blue. She wasn't getting much uh, work even at college. She wasn't getting in, in all the shows or anything. But all of a sudden she got this gig with Beauty and the Beast, the big national tour, like Disney's Beauty and the Beast. This is like theater. This is sort of the, kind of the top of the food chain at theater. Uh, traveling tour with the company and she's going to be the understudy for Belle, which means she went on to perform for a year. She was Belle 40 times. Performed 300 times. I read about her in the newspaper, and I'm like, "Geez, I think I'm missing something here. I think I'm not paying attention. I'm too busy." And it was so. It was true. Trying to find this essential voice that we were able to pursue what we're doing, and there's this newspaper <laughs> story that's actually connecting us. We're just both college students. It was very short time after that that we started dating, and actually, really short time after that that we got married. I mean, I think our your engagement was about five weeks long, actually. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you don't normally recommend that to people. But, <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> well, I think it, it goes back to the same idea, right? When something feels right, it's aligned with your values and what you're looking for. And really, like, you, you know, it's right. It's clarity, versus, it's clarity versus emotional moment. Oh, I love this person. It was clarity. We both recognized each other. Uh, she recognized it a little faster than me, but I mean, I'm still talking the whole thing from meet to meet to marriage is like, I don't know, six, six, seven months. I mean, this is like, this thing was fast, but it was, it just felt so right. And that's what, that's really the, the core of this subject today. It, it's not just doing less things, although that's part of this strategy that we've been talking about. It's, it's doing the right things for the right reasons at the right time versus everything popular now and 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 that's that's uh you know i think that's relevant for i I hope that's relevant to people listening and for the people that you're working with and serving and uh it's been great to talk with you today yeah i think it's absolutely awesome i mean i can see so many different applications whether it's somebody sort of getting bogged down in their to-do list because they are they've just put a list of so many things to do they're not focusing on the things that are going to really get them to where they want to be or it's uh, people dating too many people or the wrong people and not sort of eliminating potential partners and getting to the place they want to be. I mean, there's so many different applications that I immediately see and I'm hoping that the people who are listening feel the same way. So I sort of, I want to introduce a challenge to them. If you're listening to this, I would love to see you list three or 400 things. We talked about like things that you would want to do or goals and then eliminate them down to one, two, three, four things. As you said, number, number of these essentials one through 10 and narrow it down to one or two or three or four of them that are, are tens. And I'd love you to send them, uh, send them to us. So you could send them at craftofchrisma.com through the contact app. I'd love to go back and sort of explore them and maybe we could have another conversation about them another time, but I'd love to see sort of an actionable step around it. But I, I mean, I love the things that you're saying. I think they're absolutely fascinating. There's so many really practical things for someone who's listening to this that they can use and apply. So I want to thank you for coming on the show today. It's been absolutely awesome. And if somebody's listening to this and you want to find out more about Greg, I'm going to post some links on the Craft Charisma website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out about him more easily. Thank you, Greg, for coming on the show today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Chris. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them 
on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.